BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is St. Johnsbury, Vermont. Known locally as St. J, with a population of just over 7,000 residents, St. Johnsbury is the largest town in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, the Northeast Kingdom being what Vermonters call the Northeast corner of their state. St. Johnsbury was settled in 1786, and in 1787, Jonathan Arnold, a member of the Continental Congress, was an early settler with six other families. By 1790, the small village had grown to 143 inhabitants, and the first town meeting, which was held at Jonathan Arnold's house, was where the name St. Johnsbury was adopted. St. Johnsbury boasts 14 places listed on the National Register of Historic Places, which is the federal government's list of sites, buildings, structures, and objects deemed worthy of preservation for their historical significance or great artistic value. The town is a community rich in traditions and culture with a vibrant art scene, beautiful architecture, and the state's only planetarium. It is said that St. Jay has more bridges than traffic lights, more spires than chain stores, and more surprises than you expect. But in 2014, the entire town was surprised by the chilling murder of one of its beloved residents. In March 2012, 33-year-old Melissa Jenkins was living in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, about 10 miles from Danville, where she was raised. She graduated from Danville High School and Linden State College with a bachelor's degree in natural science. Melissa was a science teacher, a basketball coach, and a soccer coach at St. Johnsbury Academy, where she worked for eight years. She also waited tables part-time at a local restaurant and was working on her master's degree in education. Most importantly, Melissa was single-handedly raising her two-year-old son. You know, Kathy, just a really quick add-in about St. Johnsbury. This school was actually founded in 1842. Oh, how cool. Isn't that really cool? It's a private co-ed boarding and day school, but it isn't actually private. St. Johnsbury Academy has one of the nation's oldest voucher systems in place. No way. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So it's a small town, and St. J does not have a high school for grades 9 through 12. So the way the state has it in law is that if a town or community does not have a school for whatever segment of the population, then the state will pay tuition to whatever private school is in the area. Oh, wow. So the majority of the kids in St. Johnsbury, who are of that age, choose to go to the academy and the state pays the tuition. Wow. The other cool thing about the school is one of their notable alumni is Calvin Coolidge. Oh, really? The 30th president of oh, the United wow. States. 
That's very cool. No presidents from my high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, not from mine either, but mine was all girls. <laughs> not yet, anyway. Yeah, not yet, not yet. <laughs> On Sunday, March 25th, 2012, Melissa Jenkins received a phone call just after 8.30 p.m. at her home. A woman she knew from town called and informed Melissa that her car had broken down. She apparently was only a mile from Melissa's house, and so she asked if Melissa could come help her. In small-town Vermont, it was not unusual for neighbors to lend a helping hand to one another, of course. Melissa called her close friend, Randy, to let him know she received a call from a woman who she did not know very well. She couldn't even remember the woman's name and had met her only a few times. Melissa said she was going to help but felt uneasy and wanted someone to know what she was doing and where she was going. When Randy had not heard back from Melissa after about an hour or so, he started calling her. When he wasn't able to reach her, he became concerned. At about 11 p.m. that night, he drove to her house, and on his way, he saw Melissa's SUV parked on the side of the road about a quarter mile from her house. The engine was running, the lights were on, and when he opened the driver's door, he saw her son strapped into his car seat in the back. The little boy was asleep and uninjured. Randy also found one of Melissa's shoes outside of her car toward the front of the vehicle, but she was nowhere to be found. He immediately called 911. When troopers from the St. Johnsbury Barracks, that's what they call the state police stations in Vermont, and the St. Johnsbury Police Department arrived at the scene, they immediately started looking for something that might indicate where Melissa was or what might have happened to her. Troopers found evidence at the scene that indicated her disappearance may have been the result of foul play after concluding the evidence demonstrated signs of a struggle. Detectives found a baseball cap in the dirt near the front of the car, and the shoe Randy told them was similar to the type of shoes she wore. Also in the dirt in front of her car, investigators noticed what looked like fresh tire prints leading away from the scene. Based on Randy's statement that Melissa told him she received a phone call from a woman for help but was uneasy about the meeting, Detectives requested a subpoena for Melissa's cell phone records. While they waited for the phone company to send the information, they brought in a detective who specialized in child forensic interviews so they could talk to Melissa's two-year-old son. Despite his young age, when he was asked what happened to his mom, he said, man took mommy. Then he made motions toward his neck and started tugging on it, suggesting to detectives that his mother had been strangled. Police immediately issued a statewide BOLO alert be on the lookout for Melissa Jenkins, and the area was flooded with state troopers, county sheriffs, and local police who were all looking for any sign of her. They also took a closer look at Melissa's friend Randy. It seemed unusual to police that he was the only person who knew she was going out, especially so late on a Sunday when her son would have already been in bed and she had work early the next morning. Detectives asked Randy as many details as he could remember about the phone call, as well as what his relationship was with Melissa. Randy told them at one point he and Melissa had dated, but after the breakup, they were able to remain close friends. This, of course, piqued the detective's interest. They asked if there was any animosity between the two, which Randy, of course, adamantly denied. So until detectives were able to corroborate his story, Randy remained a suspect. The next day, Major Ed Lido the criminal division commander for the state police said they received several leads regarding Melissa's disappearance and had already conducted many interviews. 
He said she was very well known in the community and they were using every resource they had to find her and bring her home safely. After speaking with Melissa's family and friends, another suspect popped up. They told detectives she still had a close relationship with the father of her son, who was now her ex-boyfriend. However, since Melissa had been granted full custody, investigators wanted to dig a little deeper into the ex-boyfriend's background. Her son's father lived about 90 minutes away in Burlington, Vermont. When the investigators spoke with him, he seemed to be truly alarmed that something might have happened to Melissa and was very concerned about his son, who was staying with Melissa's family. The ex-boyfriend also had an airtight alibi. He was out of state at the time. And detectives knew that if Melissa's ex was the one who hurt or abducted her, their two-year-old son would have been able to say that his dad did it. Investigators also searched Melissa's home to see if there was anything that would help them find her. As they went room to room, there was nothing out of place and there were no indications that any sort of struggle happened there. They did find a business card in the middle of Melissa's kitchen counter that was for a snow plowing business operated by local residents Alan and Patricia Prue. After finding Alan Prue's business card, detectives knew Alan could be a potential witness to Melissa's disappearance. The police went to Alan's home in the early morning hours of March 26, 2012. This was hours after Melissa's disappearance. Alan and his wife Patricia were already up when detectives arrived, and the police talked to them about where they had been the day before and whether either of them had been in recent contact with Melissa. With Alan's consent, police searched their home, outbuildings, and motor vehicles. After 14 hours of looking into leads, talking to people who knew her, and searching the area, there was still no sign of Melissa. Later that morning, so still on Monday, March 26th, police received Melissa's cell phone records. They were able to confirm the last outgoing call Melissa made was to her friend Randy at 8.39 p.m., corroborating his alibi and ruling him out as a suspect. Immediately before Melissa called Randy, the records showed an incoming call at 8.34 p.m. that was one and a half minutes long from a number detectives could not match. They were able to determine that the number belonged to a track phone that had been purchased about a month prior on February 28, 2012, and the only call made using the phone was the one call to Melissa the night she disappeared. Detectives were able to locate the store where the track phone was purchased in Littleton, New Hampshire, which is about 20 miles east of St. Johnsbury. Police contacted the store and were able to look at surveillance video footage that showed transactions at the cash registers. Investigators knew exactly when the cell phone was purchased, so they were able to pull up the video that showed a blonde woman walk up to the register and buy the phone. The woman did not look familiar to the detectives, so they sent still photos from the video to the FBI to try and get an identification. At approximately 2 o'clock p.m. on Monday, March 26, 2012, so about 17 hours after Melissa disappeared, Vermont State Troopers began searching an area of woods called Pine Grove Park along the Connecticut River about 10 miles from where Melissa's car was found. Where they were looking, the water was only a couple of feet deep, and as they walked around a boat launch, they saw what looked like a body in the river with trees on top of it. As they got closer, they saw it was a naked female body, face down in shallow water, with rope around her wrists and ankles. Two cinder blocks were placed on top of her back to hold the body down. Based on the pictures detectives had seen, they preliminarily identified the body as Melissa Jenkins. The community was devastated. They were in shock 
angry, and afraid. They could not imagine any local resident capable of such brutality. Half an hour after police announced that they had recovered Melissa's body, more than 200 people converged on the restaurant where Melissa had waited tables for the past 12 years. She was remembered as being totally devoted to her son. He was her whole world. She was also remembered as being very kind and thoughtful and would do anything to help anyone in need. Melissa's students were struggling to comprehend how something like this could have happened to someone who was such an important part of their lives. I'm sure for a lot of those students, this was the first death they'd had to deal with. I completely agree. And in the photos that they were showing or any of the videos, you just saw the parents hugging the kids. Like the Mm -hmm. kids were kind of, they were despondent. They didn't know what to do. Right. You know, I saw this once, and actually it wasn't one of my own parents, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, I do have gallows humor, but you lose a parent early, that's what's going to happen. That's true. Where I grew up, everybody went from kindergarten through well, at least junior high, because I took off to a private school in high school. But right. but they kind of went to school the whole way up. And so everybody knew everybody else. The parents knew each other. And in seventh grade, a girl lost both of her parents in a car crash. Oh. And actually, she and one of her sisters, there were three of them, they were in the back seat of the car. Oh, my gosh. So both parents are killed. And, you know, my dad had died several years earlier than that. And in this case, the kids didn't know what to do. But kids turned out in force for this funeral. Oh, and it was amazing. But you saw the same kind of thing. And I had already gone through it. So it wasn't the same. Right. You know, like I kind of right. understood. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that when somebody dies and this is advice to everybody, if you ever have somebody who's close to you or a friend who has lost somebody, ask what their favorite memory is of the person who just passed away. Oh, ask the grieving person. Ask the grieving person, ah. because all you want to do is talk about the person who passed away and nobody wants to talk to you about it. They're awkward. They don't know what to say. And it's it's all done in good spirit. Like right. they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to make it awkward, what have you. But that's all you want to do. So when this girl lost her parents, I just remember we were sitting, it was out in gym and we were sitting out on the grass and it was the first time I had seen her. And I said, what do you remember most about your parents? And all the kids around me were like, <gasps> couldn't believe that I had said that. Right. And she lit up and started talking about her mom and dad. You know, it's so funny. I can see that being so true. Like, as you know, my dad has been very sick lately. And it's funny how my mind circulates the positive things that he's done and the impact he's had on me. And so it's interesting. Like, it's a very significant time of reflection. I could see that being a really good question to ask a grieving person. Right. Like, what did you learn? What did they teach you? Or what's your favorite memory? Right. Yeah. All of those things. I love that. Governor Peter Shumlin extended his condolences to Melissa's family. He said Melissa was the kind of Vermonter who made residents of the state so proud to be Vermonters. He also called her murder an unspeakably horrid tragedy. In the late afternoon after Melissa's body was found, Alan and Patricia Prue, who operated the snowplowing business, showed up at the state police barracks in St. Johnsbury to follow up with their complaint that Patricia made several weeks prior about the unauthorized use of her credit card. Police officers sat down with them to get some details. Patricia said there were some charges on her credit card that she did not recognize and told detectives that she suspected her ex-husband was responsible. With Patricia's consent, police downloaded the contents of her cell phone so their computer specialist could determine if her phone had been possibly hacked. When detectives finished taking the report on the suspected identity theft, They asked the Prues how they knew Melissa. 
Alan said Melissa had hired him to plow her driveway for several years, but canceled the service a few years back. He saw her around town every now and then, but otherwise they didn't have any contact. Investigators then asked the Prues where they were the day Melissa was murdered. Alan went through their day and gave detectives a detailed rundown, including running errands and going to a fast food drive through for lunch. Alan even gave the approximate times of their errands and said that on that night, he and Patricia went to bed at 7 p.m. because they had to be up early to deliver newspapers, which was one of his many part-time jobs. When detectives asked Alan and Patricia how they felt when they heard about what happened to Melissa, they said they were sad. Detectives followed up on Alan and Patricia's alibis. They went to the fast food place where Alan said they got lunch and looked at video surveillance at the drive through window. They saw Alan and Patricia pull up in the truck at about the same time Alan said they were there. They also noticed the baseball cap Alan was wearing. It was identical to the baseball cap found on the ground near Melissa's SUV on the night she was taken. Detectives then pulled up the video from the convenience store where the track phone was purchased and found that the person who bought the phone looked a lot like Patricia Prue. Vermont state troopers now believed Alan and Patricia were responsible for the murder of Melissa Jenkins. Two days after Melissa was killed, on March 27, 2012, the Vermont Chief Medical Examiner's Office ruled her death a homicide and the cause was strangulation. Crime scene investigators were able to get additional tire prints from where detectives found Melissa's body and were able to match them to the tire prints found near Melissa's car on the night of her disappearance. That same day, detectives asked Alan and Patricia to come back to the station so they could speak with them about their identity theft case. Alan was questioned by Lieutenant Matthew Nally, who told Alan they needed more information about the identity theft and who he thought might be responsible. So, Kath, after Lieutenant Nally and Alan Prue were talking for probably about 15 minutes, mm-hmm. one of the detectives, Todd Baxter, opens the door and sees Alan with Lieutenant Nally. And he said, hey, Lieutenant, I was here to talk to you. But, Alan, funny thing, I was just at your house. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Melissa's death. What a coincidence that you're here. Or he might as well have said, what a dink!" Right. <laughs> because this was a ruse. <laughs> So when Alan and Patricia had arrived at the station, they had actually separated the two of them, and they had actually planned this the entire time. Detective Baxter was never anywhere near the Prue house. He was always there. It was a set time, and Lieutenant Nally was there, of course, to talk to him about the identity theft, so he was a little off guard for Baxter to then come in and be like, oh, buddy, man, I was just at your house. How you doing? So the detective who interrupts the interrogation says, I'm here to talk to you about the murder. Yeah. Did you guys hear like a record scratching in the background? Like, <laughs> well, no, because the way the detective talked to Alan, it was really just very casual, very buddy buddy. And so it was, dude, I just wanted to talk to you about what happened. Ah. As if he might have additional information to give him. He might have a theory the right, detective might right. be interested in. So Alan didn't seem flummoxed. Flummoxed? That's a $5 word. Thank you very much. <laughs> The conversation then shifted to the murder, it the, did. the interview. Oh, so Lieutenant Nally said, Detective Baxter, come on in. That's so smooth. And they sat down and talked. Now, this was all on video, and so they were able to see everything. Mm-hmm. So when the detective sat down then to talk to Alan now about Melissa's death, it really was just a casual conversation. That's kind of what it looked like. Alan was not taking this as something serious at all. 
He really spoke to the detectives more freely than you would expect in an interrogation. Allen told both detectives about his and Patricia's whereabouts two days prior. This is the day Melissa died. They'd already gone through the list of items that Allen had done, but Allen went through them again. And three hours into the interview, detectives actually started pressing Allen harder about whether or not he was telling the truth. And they told Allen that they were looking at him and Patricia for Melissa's murder. Alan then became very agitated, very hostile, as you would expect, and what I expected three hours prior. I was just going to say, it took him three hours to get agitated and hostile. (laughs) (laughs) And he began demanding to know what the police had on him. Lieutenant Nally and Detective Baxter then began to confront him with the evidence that they had against him. Starting with the video surveillance from the fast food restaurant that Alan had told them about, telling him he was wearing a hat that was identical to the hat found on the ground in front of Melissa's SUV the night she died, and they had the hat and had done a DNA swab of it. The detectives also told Alan about the video that showed Patricia purchasing the track phone that was used to call Melissa that night. So this whole time, Patricia is in another room. Yes. Was she just sitting there stewing? I think she had to have been. She did not talk to the police at all. Okay. This was all Alan. After the detectives told him this evidence they had against him and Patricia, he admitted to strangling Melissa Jenkins. Wow. And over the next seven hours, Alan gave a full confession and took detectives to the site where Melissa's body was found. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc according to an episode of killer couples season 10 episode 9 alan told detectives that melissa's murder was just an accident he said he met patricia his wife on an online dating site 
Shortly thereafter, they married, and Patricia moved to Vermont to live with Alan and his family. You know, Kath, what's funny about this story, like when I was doing the research on it, this was in 2012, and people were doing dating apps at that time. It was a pretty active thing, but it was still a time 10 years ago when people were like, you got to be careful, you got to be careful. Now it's so prevalent and people do it all the time. I remember my sister-in-law being on a dating app and she was so vigilant about not being the person to get the serial killer. (laughs) Smart girl. But literally like back when dating apps started, it was terrifying, like for women. And it still actually is. There's just better resources now for people to be able to check. But back in 2011... People still weren't telling a lot of their friends or anybody. That's how you met the person. Totally. People now just go, oh, yeah, we met online. Right. It's it's just accepted. It's a thing. It's like you said you met at a bar or you met at the coffee house. But like way back when it first started, number one, if you participated, you were going to be a victim of a serial killer. And number two, if you told anybody that you met your significant other online, it was like, oh, (laughs) now it's like, hey, we met online. And they're like, of course you did. Where else are you going to (laughs) meet? Exactly. Although I'm I'm a big fan of interpersonal communication, going to a bar, half drunk, you know, <laughs> spilling beer on people, you know, and that now kind you of know thing. Kathy's college years. Exactly. <laughs> college, post college, early marriage, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it turns out on their honeymoon, Patricia breaks the news to Alan that she is bisexual, and she tells him that she would like to invite women into their marital bed. You're such a prude. <laughs> No chaperones? Alan was probably like, okay. I'm sure. Okay, so really quickly, another story, but this has to do with Patricia and Alan. When they were married and Patricia moved to Vermont, they lived in a mobile home that had three bedrooms. One bedroom had Alan's sister and her husband and a couple kids. Another bedroom had his mother and her boyfriend. And then he and Patricia were in the third bedroom in this mobile home. So... It's great that Patricia wants to invite somebody into their marriage. Or into- is, is it great? Is it great? Okay. Well, I'm talking That's from- Kathy with a K. I need to clarify that. I'm simply talking from Alan's perspective. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they could not bring anybody in without everybody hearing what was going on in this bedroom. So Patricia has this great idea. Let's get a camper. So they got a camper. They parked it on the driveway next to the mobile home. And that is where they started inviting these other women to participate in marital relations, Kathy, with a C. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, you're living in a manufactured home with everyone stuffed into these three bedrooms. I was like, that is way too close for comfort. (laughs) Alan said as they continued experimenting with sex, things took a darker turn. Patricia suggested they get a sexual plaything someone they could do with what they wanted and basically treat the person as an inanimate object. They decided the best way to do this was to kidnap a woman. And they both had the same woman in mind, Melissa Jenkins. Alan had been attracted to Melissa for a long time, and before he was married, he would ask her out on dates every time he saw her. So, Kath, he would be plowing her driveway, and they would be making small talk, and he'd be like, oh, by the way, do you want to go out? And she'd be like, no, thank you. And so she was constantly rejecting this guy. Anyway, so he was attracted to her for a long time. She never took him up on his offer to go out for a date. And after a while, it made her uncomfortable because he would not take no for an answer. So she stopped using him to plow her driveway and basically said, you know what? It's okay. We're good. I don't need my driveway plowed. Thank you very much. And hired another company. And Kathy, in choosing Melissa, Patricia had more nefarious intentions because 
she knew that her husband had always had a crush on Melissa. And she it was just, jelly. So she wholeheartedly agreed that Melissa would be their sexual object. Alan and Patricia decided they would kidnap Melissa on Sunday night, March 25th, 2012. Patricia was the one who called Melissa on the phone with a story about their car breaking down a mile away from Melissa's house, knowing she would come to help them. Their intent was to get her to a different location. So the plan was that Alan was going to ask her if she would be interested in a threesome with them. But he told police when Melissa arrived, he made a mistake. As soon as she got out of the car, he started strangling her. Alan said this turned into a violent encounter because Melissa was fighting for her life. Good for her. Yeah, she was putting up one hell of a struggle. No second location. That's exactly right. So Patricia had to jump into the melee and help him subdue her. But the whole second location thing, this gets back to The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. And one of his big things is do not let someone take you to a different location. Fight for your life. Like Melissa did. Right. Alan choked Melissa into unconsciousness and believed she was dead. He then put her in the backseat of his vehicle, and then he heard a noise coming from her car. It was her son crying in the backseat. Thankfully, neither Alan nor Patricia harmed the child. They left him in the backseat of the car and drove away. Patricia jumped into the backseat with Melissa, who again was unconscious and possibly dead, we don't know, and the coroner doesn't know, frankly, and continued strangling her to make sure that she was dead. So now Melissa's dead. These two panic and decide to get rid of the body. The Prues then drove to their home in Waterford, Vermont, which was about 11 miles away from where they attempted to kidnap and then killed Melissa. Mm -hmm. Once they were at their home, they undressed Melissa and laid her on a piece of plastic and then doused her body in bleach because they didn't want police to be able to get her fingerprints, which I'm not sure that's actually how you do it. Yeah, I I don't know. I've never tried. I I was just going to say, like, I I really don't know. (laughs) Okay, we'll look into that. But it will definitely degrade DNA. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. They then put her in the back of their car and drove to Pine Grove Park to dispose of her body. And they placed it in the shallow water and put cinder blocks down to weigh Melissa down. But they didn't want her to be so easily recognizable. And so Alan cut some branches off a sapling. Mm -hmm. And then they laid these on top of her to hopefully, I guess, in their minds, hide Mm -hmm. her a little bit more from Mm -hmm. view. The Prues then drove to New Hampshire. And, you know, in California, it's kind of odd to say this because you don't drive state to state really easily. Like Vermont, one side to the other is probably like hour and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Waterford and St. Johnsbury were right next to New Hampshire. Alan and Patricia drove to New Hampshire and went to some site and decided to burn their clothing and her clothing. Mm -hmm. So now it's even out of state, but now it's all burned. Now, remember, we know all of this because Alan is currently talking to Lieutenant Nally and Detective Baxter. Mm -hmm. Detective Baxter then asked Alan if he would take investigators to all of these different places he said he went that night after they attacked and killed Melissa, which Alan agreed to do. Alan first took them to New Hampshire, where Alan and Patricia had burned the clothing. And then Alan took the detectives to the boat launch in Pine Grove Park and pointed out the saplings he cut to put the branches on top of Melissa's body to help hide her from plain view. He also told detectives he threw her cell phone in the river and told them the general direction and how far he threw it. And so police divers were actually able to recover her phone. And after it dried out, the police computer crimes lab were able to get it working. That's incredible. So, Kath, while he's coughing up all this information, 
Is Patricia still in the other room? My understanding is yes. Okay. Despite Alan telling detectives that he and his wife killed Melissa, Patricia Prue denied any involvement whatsoever in Melissa Jenkins' murder. Nonetheless, on Tuesday, March 27th, 2012, this is two days after Melissa disappeared and one day after her body was found, Mm -hmm. Alan and Patricia Prue were formally charged with one count each of second-degree murder. They both pled not guilty, and Judge Kathleen Manley ordered them both held without bail. On Friday, March 30th, 2012, five days after Melissa first went missing, a memorial service was held at St. Johnsbury Academy, the school where Melissa taught science for the past eight years. Melissa's students decorated the gym and served as ushers for hundreds of people who attended the service. The gym was not big enough to hold everyone and mourners spilled out of the building. Many of the mourners wore pink, which was Melissa's favorite color, and students handed out pink ribbons to everyone entering the gym. Melissa was remembered as a teacher, a coach, a colleague, a mentor, a hard worker, and a friend. Well, and remember, not only was she a teacher and working on her master's degree and had a two-year-old son who she was raising, Mm -hmm. she was also a waitress part-time. For 12 years, she had waitressed. I love that, though. And frankly, Kathy, most of all, she was remembered as a loving mother who had a smile for everyone. Yeah. So, Kathy, Vermont police officers were also at Mm -hmm. this service. And when Melissa's cousin got up to speak, she asked all of the officers to go to the front row of the gym and sit with the family. That is so cool. As they walked to the front, the crowd rose and gave them a standing ovation. I love that. 17 hours they solved this. That's incredible. they did it because of Melissa. Yeah. Melissa gets credit for this. Absolutely. That business card. And calling the friend. Yes. Those were the two key points. Totally. Dignitaries also attended the memorial, and in particular, the governor, Peter Shumlin, and Lieutenant Governor Phil Scott, as well as U.S. Senator Patrick Leahy. Helium-filled pink balloons had been put up throughout the downtown area of St. Johnsbury and nearby Danville, which is where Melissa grew up. Almost three months after Melissa Jenkins' murder, on June 23, 2012, the murder charges against Allen and Patricia Prue were upgraded to first-degree murder. Caledonia County State's Attorney Lisa Warren said new evidence showed Melissa's death was premeditated. The coroner's report stated that although the cause of death was strangulation, she was also severely beaten, many bruises indicating she had been kicked repeatedly, and electrocuted with a stun gun. State's Attorney Warren said that before the crime, the Prues bought a stun gun. A 10-page affidavit filed by Vermont State Police Detective Sergeant Walter Smith included statements from several inmates who were jailed at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility with Patricia. And I know you love jailhouse snitches, Gal. Yeah, exactly. They're my favorite people. I know. The inmates said that Patricia made comments that the killing was planned in advance, as well as admitting she strangled Melissa while Alan sexually assaulted her. It's important to note, though, that the coroner's report said a sexual assault could not be ruled in, but it also could not be ruled out. And the affidavit noted that the statements made by the inmates were similar to portions of a ripped-up note Patricia had written and then thrown out. What do you mean? So she and Alan were writing letters to each other, which the police— Oh, you mean like she's in one jail, he's in another. Exactly. And it took the police a little while to figure this out. Don't know why. I'm not sure either, (laughs) but it did. So she would sometimes write notes and then tear them up. And after the inmates had come to the police and said, hey, by the way, we're hearing this, they actually pulled her trash— 
and found some of these notes that she had torn up. Oh, interesting. This is also the same time, by the way, that they stopped the two of them from corresponding. Right. They should have let it go and admit it in court because they look at all that stuff. Right. On June 27th, 2012, so this is three days after the new charges were announced, Alan Prue pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, and Patricia Prue pleaded not guilty to a charge of aggravated murder, accusing her of killing Melissa Jenkins during a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. In May 2013, so this is now 14 months after Melissa's murder, both Alan and Patricia filed a request with the court to be given new court-appointed attorneys because they were not satisfied with the job their attorneys were doing. Immediately after this filing, Patricia Prue's attorney filed a motion to withdraw, citing ethical and professional reasons. However, one week later, despite Patricia's attorney requesting to be removed, Judge Mary Miles Teachout denied both requests, telling them that they were not entitled to harmonious relationships with their lawyers, only to effective attorneys who can present an appropriate defense. Boom, sister. Six weeks after she had rejected new attorneys, she granted the defense attorney's request to be removed because one of his former clients had become a potential witness for the state. You know, he probably made this motion like, hey, you know, we're not getting along. It's not effective, blah, blah, blah. It's interfering with the relationship. And the judge was like, nope. And he's like, hmm, got to find another reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> conflict of interest, conflict of interest. Well, in another dink, shortly after that, Alan's attorney was removed because he said he also had a conflict with someone on the prosecutor's witness list. But I could also see that. This it's is, a small town. Yes. Like, no, I agree. Th- they're going to know people. 18 months after Melissa was murdered, in September 2013, Caledonia County State's Attorney Lisa Warren filed additional charges against Allen and Patricia Prue. They were each charged with conspiracy to commit murder and kidnapping, and Patricia was charged with eight counts of possession of child pornography after finding multiple images on her laptop computer. In the lead-up to Allen's trial, there were several motions that were brought before the judge. In March of 2014, so now we're exactly two years to the day from when Alan confessed to police, Mm -hmm. his attorney asked the judge to throw out Alan's confession, saying that the police interviews were not voluntary and he was not properly advised of his Miranda rights. Prosecutors said the confession came well after Alan waived his Miranda rights and agreed to keep talking. The judge decided the confession would not be thrown out. But what was interesting in this is that the defense had hired a psychologist who opined that Allen did not adequately understand his Miranda rights because he has an IQ of 75. Two months later, in May of 2014, Patricia Prue's attorney indicated that he was going to use an insanity defense in her upcoming trial, citing that she had a lengthy history with mental disease with extensive treatment both before and after she was held without bail in the case. The next month, in June of 2014, Allen Prue's trial was moved from Caledonia County to Chittenden County, which was on the exact opposite side of the state, but in Vermont, it was just 70 miles west. In August of 2014, and this I thought was interesting, Allen's lawyer filed a motion to suppress evidence about the call between Melissa and her friend Randy when she said she had a hinky feeling and she wanted to make sure someone knew where she was going. Mm -hmm. That, too, was not thrown out. Allen Prue's murder trial began on Monday, October 6, 2014, 19 months after Melissa's murder, with Judge Robert Bent presiding. Two days later, opening statements began with state's attorney Lisa Warren telling jurors how Allen and his wife began planning the crime long before Melissa was strangled. She walked them through how the police honed in on the couple, starting with the call from Melissa's friend Randy, all the way to finding the business card on Melissa's counter. State's attorney Warren said Melissa helped police find her. Defense counsel Robert Kadams told jurors of Allen's 75 IQ 
He also said that he was in awe of Patricia, a woman he met in line and married six months later, and a woman with a long history of psychiatric problems. Attorney Kadem said the evidence would show that it was Patricia Prue who planned everything without Alan's knowledge, and she was the one who strangled Melissa in a jealous rage. Over the next three days, prosecutors played the audio of Alan's interview with state troopers in which he described to the police how he and his wife killed Melissa. Alan first confessed that he committed the murder and his wife Patricia had nothing to do with it, although later in the interview he admitted it was both of them. When Alan took police to the river where he dumped her body, you can hear Alan crying as he apologized to Melissa. Melissa, if you can hear me, I'm terribly sorry. You didn't deserve that. You deserve to live a long life and to see your baby grow up. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I did. In court, as this audio played, the defendant, Alan Prue, sat still and did not show any emotions. On October 15, 2014, 11 days after trial began, Vermont's chief medical examiner, Dr. Stephen Shapiro, testified that Melissa Jenkins' death was from manual strangulation. Dr. Stephen Shapiro testified about the different types of marks left by various forms of strangulation. He then testified that he ruled Melissa Jenkins' death was from manual strangulation, meaning it was done by hand. The jury was shown pictures of Melissa's body, with Dr. Shapiro using a laser pointer, directing the jurors' attention to the myriad of scrapes and bruises on Melissa's body. State's attorney Warren asked him about six circular marks, which he said was caused by a stun gun. He said, unlike a taser, which almost instantaneously incapacitates a person, a stun gun causes pain but does not incapacitate. Dr. Shapiro said it was a weapon used for making a person comply. The next day, the jury was absent as Patricia Prue was brought in to testify after the state subpoenaed her. However, she invoked her right against self-incrimination and did not testify. Then, in front of the jury, Vermont State Police digital forensics expert, Detective Sergeant Peter Garavaltis, was brought in to testify about his search of Patricia Prue's laptop. The detective said there were search terms from nine months prior to the murder related to how to kidnap a girl and how to rape a girl and not get caught. Detective Sergeant Garavaltis also testified that a police search of Alan Prue's laptop found it was used to shop for a stun gun. And in Melissa Jenkins' cell phone memory, he found an unsent text message from the day she died that said, gone to help someone out on the road. The state rested its case on October 20th, 2014, two weeks after the start of the trial. The first person called to the stand by defense counsel Robert Kadams was an inmate who was incarcerated with Patricia Prue. Amy Bede testified that Patricia Prue told her that Patricia's husband, Alan, did not kill Melissa Jenkins. After presenting three additional witnesses, which included Alan Prue's mother, a St. Johnsbury woman with whom the Prue's had a consensual sexual relationship on four different occasions, and a psychologist, the defense rested its case. Alan Prue declined to testify. On Wednesday, October 22, 2014, after six hours of deliberation, a jury of six men and six women found Alan Prue guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and attempted kidnapping. Many of Melissa Jenkins' family members declined to comment when they left the courtroom after the verdict was read. 
Melissa's aunt, however, Linda Gadapi, said the verdict was a big weight off the family's shoulders. WPTZ News Channel 5 spoke to a few of Melissa's relatives who were back home in St. Johnsbury. Martin Beatty, Melissa's uncle, said, no one wins. It's another chapter that we've taken care of, but we do know that Alan Prue will never hurt another person again. Eric Berry, who was married to Melissa's cousin, the same cousin who called the Vermont State Troopers up to the front of the gym during the memorial service, agreed that nobody does win. We don't get Melissa back, but that monster is off the streets. Just over two months after Alan was convicted, on December 17, 2014, Judge Robert Bent sentenced Alan to life in prison. An appeal to the Vermont Supreme Court is automatic. Patricia Prue's trial was scheduled to start in March of 2015. However, on December 16, 2014, Patricia asked the court if she could accept a plea deal that had been offered by prosecutors. Under the plea agreement, Patricia would plead guilty to first-degree murder and the other charges against her, aggravated murder, improper disposal of a dead body, and eight counts of possession of child pornography, would be dismissed. The sole reason Patricia gave for wanting to accept the deal was she wanted to be allowed to write to her husband, Alan, again. Now, remember, Kath, this was barred by a judge after they were arrested because they were communicating with each other for several months via letter. Her defense attorney, Brian Marcicovitere, had been planning an insanity defense and said he was concerned that Patricia's decision was an indication of her worsening mental condition because it was a big deviation from her prior position that she had nothing to do with Melissa Jenkins' murder. In January of 2015, so this is now one month after Patricia said she wanted to take the prosecutor's plea deal, her attorney, Brian Marsicovitere, asked Judge Robert Bent for a second mental examination of his client so a judge could be assured that Patricia was competent to make the decision to change her plea. Initially, a court-ordered evaluation had already found Patricia to be competent, but defense counsel wanted to use a doctor that was chosen by them, and Judge Bent granted the request. Almost a month later, on Thursday, February 12, 2015, Patricia Prue's attorney told the court he now believed Patricia was competent to make the choice to take a plea deal. Judge Bent accepted a plea deal in which Patricia pled guilty to first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and kidnapping. In exchange, Patricia received life without the possibility of parole on the murder charge, four to five years on the conspiracy charge, and another life sentence on the kidnapping charge. Significantly, Patricia also waived her right to an automatic appeal. So as we said, Alan had an automatic appeal, and 18 months later, the Vermont Supreme Court affirmed Alan Prue's convictions and sentencing. So Kathy, what was interesting about the appeal for Alan Prue is defense counsel said that Alan Prue was not Mirandized correctly, that the police lied to him, and he had such a low IQ that he wasn't capable of even understanding the Miranda rights if they had been given to him properly. But in addition to the audio that was played for the court of those seven hours of Alan's confession, they actually also had videotape. But again, because this is an automatic appeal, the defendants have to raise this issue. Right. Without that admission... You have nothing. Right. So you have to take that... Hail Mary. Exactly. On appeal and just go for it. But, of course, the Vermont Supreme Court said, nay, nay, not happening. (laughs) Did they not say, hey, look? (laughs) Hey, look, this isn't happening. (laughs) 
In 2017, Alan and Patricia Prue legally divorced. I guess they can't write to each other anymore. I guess. Alan is being housed at the Tallahatchie County Correctional Facility in Tutwiler, Mississippi, under a Vermont program that pays to have its prisoners moved to prevent overcrowding in its prisons. Patricia Prue is incarcerated at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility in Burlington, Vermont. Neither are eligible for parole. So despite Patricia taking the plea deal that was offered to her by prosecutors Mm -hmm. and signing away her rights to appeal and all of those things in December of 2021, so just about seven months ago, Patricia filed a post-conviction relief petition asking for her conviction to be thrown out. She alleged misconduct by the prosecutor, the judge, and her own defense attorney with her handwritten petition stating that she had ineffective counsel, lack of objective communication, was under extreme stress, and could not effectively aid in her own defense. Ten years later, Melissa's loss still resonates with her family, her friends, and her community. With each anniversary after her murder, they remember the kind, caring, compassionate woman she was and what she brought to their lives. And they try to emulate her motto, which was, love wins. Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy all of the stories, doing the research, finding out Mm -hmm. all the details. And several of our listeners, of course, have sent us suggestions. Yes, we love that. We do. We absolutely love it. If you have any that you're interested in, it happened in your hometown, you've heard of it. Let us know. And if you're not following us, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook.